All right, we are still in our series in uh, the book of Isaiah tonight. Um, we are skipping over a few chapters in Isaiah since last week's message. Uh, in those chapters, there was more of the uh, description of the sinfulness of God's people and of the coming judgment uh, that was uh, coming to them because of their failure to worship and obey him properly. Um, and not just on the people of Israel and Judah. In chapter 10, there's also uh, Isaiah talks about the judgment that is coming on the people of Assyria. Just because the Assyrians were God's instrument for judgment on his own people does not mean that they too were not liable to judgment. The whole earth is under the curse of sin and is liable to uh, judgment for God. It's a very bad situation that Isaiah describes. But in tonight's passage, this is one of the times where uh, Isaiah uh, makes very clear predictions about the coming of the Messiah who would come and solve all of these problems that he's been talking about. Yes, the prophet predicts dark times ahead, but he also predicts an era of perfect peace and righteousness. It starts in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, where it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah is using a, uh, a picture here uh, that, uh, that is kind of an interesting uh, uh, picture and metaphor. Um, he says, a shoot will come up from a stump. So what, what is he talking about, a shoot from a stump? Well, this is Alaska. Probably some of you have cut your own firewood. And if you cut your own firewood, you've probably actually seen this happen, where you can go and you cut down a tree, and you leave the stump sitting there, and you come back sometime later, and new branches are starting to grow out the side of the stump and regrow the tree. And... Uh, and that happens because there is still life in that massive root system of that tree that's still all there underground, and it's still drawing water and nutrients and all those things, and it, just like a tree can survive a winter without any leaves or anything, uh, it can sometimes survive even being cut down, and, uh, and new branches will regrow. Um, and Isaiah says that's what's going to happen to God's people. He's been prophesying some pretty terrible judgments. The Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to destroy the nations of Israel and Judah. Only a small remnant of God's people will survive, and even those who survive uh, will be taken away into exile in Babylon. God's chosen nation will be like the stump of a tree that has been cut down. But what about God's plan of salvation? What about the promises made to Abraham? Uh, how is uh, Abraham's descendants going to bring blessing to the whole world? What about the promises to King David? When the nation is destroyed and sent into exile, there's no more kings in the line of David. But God's plan of salvation prominently includes a Davidic king. When the people of God are cut down by God's judgment, does that mean that God's plans and promises have failed or changed? 
No. After judgment, there is hope. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, before we move on to see what uh, Isaiah says about that shoot, we have to say a little bit about Jesse. Who was Jesse, and why is this stump named for him? Well, today, the most famous Jesse is Jesse the Yodeling Cowgirl from Woody's Roundup. But that's not who Isaiah is talking about here. Uh, this Jesse, you'll find his story in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And his significance is mainly uh, simply as the father of the great king David, who was the man after God's own heart. And Jesse, of course, he was never a king. He was just a simple shepherd uh, living in Bethlehem. Uh, in those days. And, and, and so if Jesse is a supporting character and David is really the main guy who has the promises of God were made to him and he was the king, um, why is it called the stump of Jesse instead of the stump of David? Well, it's because we don't just need another king like David to save us from God's judgment. There were many kings in the line of David who ruled over Judah after David, and most of them were bad. Some were good and, uh, and, and led the people to worship God, but many led the people away from God and into sin. And more of that is not the solution to our problem. We need a better king. Better even than David, who, even though he was a great king and he was, uh, had, had good character and a desire to follow God, he also had some pretty major flaws. So Isaiah says that this new shoot that will come up is not just in the line of David. He is a new David. He is from the stump of Jesse. It's a restart of the line of kings for the people of God. And, of course, that new shoot from the stump of Jesse is Jesus. In his day, Jesse's family was no longer even a prominent family in the small Roman uh, province of Judea. Uh, it was uh, poor, common people like Joseph and Mary who made up the, the stump of Jesse in those days. But from such a humble beginning, a new shoot was indeed born. He is the new David, the better David. Jesus is the king that we need to lead the people of God into a right relationship with God. The next section in Isaiah describes what this messianic new king will be like. It says, starting in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, it tells us that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
That was the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about here. Jesus was the Messiah, the one anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus. And the result was the three pairs of characteristics that we see here in Isaiah. The first pair is that the Spirit gives him wisdom and understanding. And this gives him the ability to see to the heart of issues. He understands why and how things are as they are, and why and how they work the way they work. Jesus is never puzzled as to what is happening or what he is supposed to do to address it. He is full of the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The second pair is that he uh, has the spirit of counsel and of might. Counsel, again, is similar to the uh, previous one, has to know, do with knowing the right response to every situation. Jesus knows what to do, what to say, how to do it for the best outcome, and he has the spirit of might uh, that gives him the power to do what he knows to do. And that's important because if you think about this, I was, I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and I thought of a Steve Gordon painting. Um, it doesn't do a lot of good to just know uh, the basics of what to do if you don't have the ability to do it. So I understand the basics of how Steve paints one of those beautiful landscapes, right? So he mixes paint and gets the right shade uh, of paint together, and then he uses brushes to spread the paint onto a canvas. And you have to get the lighting just right. You have to have the right amount of detail and focus. But I lack both sufficient understanding of the techniques involved, and even if I understood it in my mind, I don't have the skill in my hands to uh, apply those uh, techniques to make it happen. But the branch from the stump of Jesse never has that kind of problem. He knows the solution, he knows how to do it, and he has the ability and the might to do what he knows needs to be done. And then the last pair uh, is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord. Uh, Jesus knows his Father. He knows God. And he has appropriate biblical fear of the Lord. Now, what is uh, that idea of the fear of God? We see that a fair bit in the, in the Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and, and many times uh, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. What are we talking about in the, when the Bible uses that phrase? What does it mean? Well, my favorite illustration of that biblical idea is surfers. Surfers know the ocean. They know waves, and that knowledge causes them to have a fear of the power of the ocean. They know that a big wave can push you right down to the bottom or can smash you against the rocks. And so 
they know the dangers uh, that a tiny little person is insignificant compared to the power of the ocean. And so does that fear cause them to move to Kansas, move to Kansas and never go near the water? No, they love the ocean. They love the waves. They're drawn to it. They're out there experiencing it. Um, they are drawn to go out and surf that ocean. They even look for bigger, more powerful waves that they can uh, challenge. And the one who fears the Lord has a similar attitude. He recognizes the great power of God. Even the danger involved in his own and in his own size in comparison to God. He has a healthy respect and fear of the Lord. And yet, it is not the kind of fear that causes someone to run away and keep their distance. It is a fear that causes someone to treat the Lord properly. To not be too casual and flippant in their relationship with God. To to uh, to recognize their rightful place in that relationship. Of course, this passage is about Jesus, and he is said to fear the Lord and even to delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus' relationship with his Father is a little different from the way that normal people like you and I relate to him, and so the fear of the Lord for us is going to be a, a little different. But even Jesus had the proper respect and fear for his Father in heaven. The fear of the Lord results in the desire to please God and in the desire to not disappoint Him. And those are the things that delight the one who fears the Lord. In the next section, Isaiah uh, moves on from describing the, uh, the character of the coming Messiah to talk about uh, the description of his reign as king. And so in uh, the second part of verse 3, I'm starting from there, it says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. The rule of the Messiah will be characterized by true justice. Sometimes appearances can be deceiving. Something that looks good and righteous or sounds good might not be. Something that seems wrong might in fact be the just and right thing. But Jesus will not judge by what he sees and hears because he uh, will not be fooled by appearances. His judgments are made with complete righteousness and justice always. And Isaiah specifies that those judgments will be for the needy and the poor of the earth. Now, why are those groups specifically mentioned? Uh, does Jesus not also judge the rich with justice? Well, of course he does, but we don't always see that in the world. In our world, justice is often denied to the poor and people uh, judge in favor of the rich and the powerful. But Jesus 
will judge all people with complete fairness. No longer will the rich be able to buy the outcome they want. No longer will the voice of the powerless be ignored. It will truly be justice for all. Goes on to say, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. That justice that Jesus brings will not simply be to comfort those who are afflicted and who need comfort and who have been oppressed. Justice means that the guilty will be punished. Messiah will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. The imagery here is quite similar to the book of Revelation where Jesus is pictured as having a sword coming out of his mouth that he uses to bring about judgment. And the point of all these images is that the words of judgment spoken by the Messiah will have power not just to declare what is right and wrong and what will be judged, but his words will affect judgment and justice uh, on the wicked. Now that image of righteousness and faithfulness as his belt and sash indicate that those traits are at his core. He will be completely righteous and faithful. Now, does it strike you as a little strange that uh, the one who slays the wicked uh, is in the very next sentence described as righteous and faithful? Do those ideas of judgment and faithfulness seem somewhat antithetical to you? I think there's two reasons that in our thinking that can make these uh, ideas of judgment uh, judging wickedness and being righteous seem uh, like they're in conflict. One is that we think of the judgments of God as if they are flawed in the same way that human judgments often are. Many people doubt that any human justice, uh, justice system should slay the wicked because we aren't very good at identifying who the wicked are. Many of us feel like J.R.R. Tolkien got it right when he wrote these lines for Gandalf to tell Frodo. Gandalf said, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. However true that may be for human judgment, it does not apply to the judgment of Christ. His wisdom is perfect and his justice is perfect. He never gets it wrong and he does see all ends. The other reason that we might think it's, uh, it's strange and that it's a weird pairing to have the slaying of the wicked and righteousness and faithfulness is that we think that people really aren't that wicked. They aren't so bad that they deserve to be slain. We talked about this last week. Some of us deep down think that the good and righteous thing that God should always do is to forgive 
and to overlook sins. And God certainly does offer us forgiveness. But it is forgiveness that is not deserved. And it is not a blanket forgiveness for all. God promises often in the Bible that he will judge sinners. That the wicked will be slain. That hell is real. And human nature doesn't like that. We don't want to believe that there are people who are really so wicked that it is the righteous thing to do to punish them. Who do you think needs to correct their view of justice? Us or God? When God's people are living under this perfectly just ruler who judges wickedness and rules with perfect justice, Life will be great. The next verses describe it. Starting in uh, verse 6, it says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Is this a, a literal description of what animals are going to be like when uh, Jesus is ruling? Maybe. But I think the main point here is that natural enemies will be removed. There will be no more violence. There will be no more harming each other. And although Isaiah speaks of animals here, the violence and enmity between people will be removed. And that last line is the one that carries the big theological load here. Um, it says, uh, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and the infant will play near the cobra's dead. Um, infants and snakes interacting with no problems. What other passage can you think of in the Bible that involves snakes and children? Right? It's Genesis chapter 3, where Satan takes the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve to rebel against God, and as a result, God curses the whole of creation. And as a part of that curse, God declared this to the serpent. He said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. But now Isaiah is saying that our young offspring will have no more enmity with the serpents. Um, Isaiah predicts that during the reign of the Messiah, that will be done away with. That means the curse itself has been removed. It has been undone. The Messiah's rule will be perfect, and the curse of sin will be no more. They will, uh, next verse here, verse 9, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
So how will this era of perfect peace be achieved? How will harm and destruction be removed from the earth? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When people do not know God, unrighteousness flourishes. Violence, injustice, destruction. But with the knowledge of the Lord comes this era of peace and justice. And our last verse from Isaiah today declares, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The great rule of the rule of, of the root of Jesse will not only be for the people of Israel. It says the nations will come to his banner and also be a part of his worldwide kingdom. While a lot of Old Testament prophecy does talk about Israel and a restored uh, kingdom in Jerusalem, it is clear from passages like this one that we're not talking about a return to an ethnic identity for the people of God. People from all around the world, all nations, will be rallying to Jesus for salvation. So, as I've been saying through, throughout this message, um, Jesus is the one that Isaiah is talking about here. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the spirit-filled Messiah who will bring all this about. But while in Isaiah's day, the coming of the Messiah was something that was still about 700 years away, and they were looking forward to the Messiah coming, for us now, we're looking back 2,000 years at the coming of the Messiah. Does the description of what the Messiah is going to achieve and what he's going to do sound to you like the world we're currently living in? Do we see a violence-free, perfectly just world filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? No, obviously not. So uh, if Isaiah says this is what the Messiah will do, and Jesus didn't do it, then what's happening here? What's happening here? Well, there's an, uh, an illustration about Old Testament prophecy that really helps us to understand the dynamic that's going on here. And uh, we're lucky, again, because we're in Alaska, and so many of us have probably seen this firsthand. Uh, sometimes when you're in the mountains and you're looking at a, at a range of mountains ahead, you'll see a number of peaks, and they look like they're all right next to each other. But then as you get closer, you realize that what you were seeing was almost like a 2D image, a flat image. And in reality, some of those peaks might be uh, a ridge away from where you thought they were, and they're not actually connected the way that you think they are. Um, and as you get closer, you see that there's a whole big valley in between those two peaks. Um, well, last summer when I was uh, hiking in the uh, Aragach Peaks up in the Brooks Range, man, we really had that going. The big granite peaks, you couldn't tell whether how far away things were until you got much closer. From a couple of miles away, it's really hard to get good depth perception of where these mountains are in relation to each other. And uh, prophets 
who see the Messiah coming, uh, they see uh, one single event of Jesus coming and doing all these things. He's going to uh, win salvation for all by making the sacrifice and and uh, dying for our sins, and he's also going to set up his kingdom and have this eternal reign uh, for o- over his people. Um, but what Isaiah didn't see, and what most of the Old Testament prophets didn't see, was the gap in between there. Kind of like how those mountains look like they're all right next to each other. Uh, they thought that Messiah would come and do it all at once, and they did not see that now it's been 2,000 years, and who knows how much longer it will be, in between the initial coming of the Messiah when he paid the price for sins and his second coming when he will arrive uh, to set up uh, his earthly kingdom here for eternity. So when Jesus came first, he did begin this kingdom of peace and justice. But it is not yet the universal rule that Isaiah saw. We still wait for Jesus to return and to finish his work. And so, in some ways, we're just like the people of Isaiah's day who are uh, seeing a, a, a sad world around us that's full of sin and, and destruction and violence and seeing that uh, it, we hope for a Messiah to come and, and fix the world and, uh, and save us from all of this. And, and so we're just, just in the same position as the people of Isaiah's day. But the difference, though, is that the kingdom has been begun. Messiah did come once, and the, God's kingdom now is in our hearts and lives. And as we submit to Jesus' rule and seek to live according to uh, his ways, the description that we see here in Isaiah starts to be real in our individual lives and hearts. And we start to have less enmity toward one another, less uh, rivalry and violence. We have justice for the poor and needy. We are not prejudiced for the, on the, in favor of the rich. And all of those things are uh, the things that we are working toward as Christ Uh, influences our lives and our character becomes more and more like him, we should be becoming more and more like this as we look forward to the day when he returns and sets up his perfect kingdom on earth and, and solves the problem of sin once and for all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us, through your prophet, a picture of what will be. And as we struggle through a a world full of problems and full of sin, I pray that you would give us uh, that glorious hope for a future in heaven with you, and that we would learn to seek your will and seek your kingdom in this life. Praise the name of your son, Jesus.